welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I hope that you are all having a fantastic October, and I cannot believe that we are already halfway through this month. I know that is very cliche to say that time is flying, but it seems to be true. It feels like it's true, um, at least right now. Uh, And I want to thank you all for returning this week to continue our journey through the stand. There has been some recent casting news for the CBS All Access series, Um, and since I only do this podcast once a week, um, I try to wait later in the week to record just in case some new stuff comes out, but if you guys ever want to keep up to date with all the news for the Stan miniseries, um, you can check out my blog at thecircleopens.com, and you can also follow me on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. I also have a Tumblr account that I've had um, oh man, for like five years for the stand. Uh, so I do try to keep up on updating that as well. And you can find all of those just at the circle opens. I tried to make it really easy. <laughs> so if you guys want to follow me there, um, I try to update as soon as news comes in. But for those of you who do not follow, um, they did add four new cast members, um, this week to the miniseries. And first off, they've officially confirmed that Greg Kinnear will be joining the stand as uh, Glenn Bateman. And I know Glenn is older in the book, but I really, I think I've said this before, but I really like this casting. I love Greg Kinnear. I think he's such a great actor. um, And I really liked him in Stuck in Love, which he um, starred in uh, Josh Boone's directorial debut with Nat Wolf, who was playing Lloyd Henry. And I just think he's going to be great. Um, I love Glenn. He's one of my top five favorite characters in this book. Um, so I'm super excited to see that he's officially joined the stand. I was kind of reluctant to add it to my blog and talk about it too much without an official um, confirmation. But apparently he has signed on and we are going to see him next year as Glenn Bateman. We will also be seeing Julie Lawry, who is going to be played by Catherine McNamara. I hope I said that right. And I know that she was on Shadowhunters. I never watched the show, but I think she's on Arrow now. Um, I have not seen her in anything. I haven't seen any of her shows, but um, I like the look of her. I think uh, hopefully she'll do a good job. Um, I think that we'll meet Julie around Chapter 43. And Julie is a small town girl with kind of a wild side who causes some trouble for Nick and Tom Cullen. And uh, I'm kind of, I'm really hoping that she brings the right amount of crazy to Julie. Um, Julie is a small part, but still fairly significant. So uh, we also have Eon Bailey, who was, uh, I think most notably, he's been in uh, Band of Brothers and Once Upon a Time. I think he played Pinocchio and he's going to play Teddy Wyzak. And Teddy is a member of the burial crew in Boulder, Colorado. And for those who watched the 1994 ABC miniseries, you might remember that Teddy Wyzak was played by none other than Stephen King. 
And I'm a big fan of Eon Bailey as well. I remember um, many, many years ago, I rented the DVD from the library of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you guys remember when they adapted that, um, I, mean, I can't remember if it was network TV or cable. Um, but they took several stories from Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and Eon Bailey was in one of them. And for the life of me, I cannot remember which one. I do know um, he was he starred in it with Claire Forlani. And I remember the special effects were terrible, but the story was good. And I'm a big fan of Eon Bailey, so I'm excited. I'm excited about everything, apparently. You guys can tell. I think every casting choice, I'm like, this excites me. And everything that comes out, I'm like, yes, this excites me. Which I'm so easy to please because I know um, there's a lot of discussion about these casting choices. Some people like them. Some people don't. Um, some people think this person's too old or this person's too young. But you know what? I'm just like, give it to me. Just give me everything. I've been waiting so long for this that I will take whatever you can give me. And I'm going to give you a chance. Um, and I'm going to love every part of it, I hope. So um, moving on from that, Hamish Linklater who is, uh, he was in Legion and the New Adventures of Old Christine. He has been cast as Dr. Ellis. Now, okay, Dr. Ellis is described by CBS All Access as a military colonel and infectious disease specialist who dreams of being the hero who stops the super flu. Now, there's no Dr. Ellis in the novel. Well, okay, there's a Dr. Ellis, but it's Dr. Dick Ellis, and he's a veterinarian. So that doesn't quite match the description, so I'm not sure if they're combining um, Dick Ellis with maybe Dr. Elder, who is with Stu and Stovington, or one of the other doctors like Denninger um, or Dietz. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I guess all I can do is speculate at this point who he's going to play. Or maybe he's a completely new character. Um, I would think that Dick Ellis would be in the miniseries, given his role in the book. But I guess we're going to have to wait and see on that as well. Um, also notably, Heather Graham has joined the cast. And every, okay, you have to know who Heather Graham is. You know, Austin Powers, Boogie Nights, The Hangover, God, Scrubs. I loved her on Scrubs. And she is going to be playing Rita Blakemore, a wealthy middle-aged woman who meets up with Larry in New York after the plague hits. Um, yes, Rita is middle-aged. And believe it or not, Heather Graham is 49 years old. So I think that the age is fine. Heather Graham just looks marvelous for her age and... Um, I would think that a wealthy New York socialite would have the means to also look great for her age, but we'll see uh, what they do with her in the stand. And I have to say, because I'm excited to see who they get to play Lucy Swan, because Giovanna Depot is going to have some pretty intense scenes with Heather Graham and Amber Heard. Um, so he's a pretty lucky guy, I think, at this point. I'm excited to see who they're going to get to play Lucy for him as well. And, you know, it was announced, um, when it was announced that The Stand would premiere sometime in 2020, it felt really far. Um, and I think that was like in February of this year they announced that. But they also announced that this was, project was going to happen in 2014. We've been waiting a really long time for this. And it's already October. 2020 is literally right around the corner. Um and I'm getting really excited, a little anxious, but um, it's happening. So I'm getting, I don't know. I'm just hoping that it's not going to be like winter of 2020 because, God, that's going to bum me out because <laughs> uh, fingers crossed that the world still exists at that point, right? All right. So with that out of the way, we're going to just jump into uh, this week's chapter after a very quick recap of last week. In chapter 24, 
Lloyd Henry is in prison and something of a celebrity now, but he meets with his lawyer who lays it all out for him. Basically, he's in deep shit. It's likely he'll get the death penalty for what he and Polk did, but his attorney is going to try and do what he can to get him off. Um, and they might have a shot if they can convince a jury that Lloyd feared Polk and feared for his life. But the odds are not really in Lloyd's favor. Today, in Chapter 25, we are back in Shoyo, Arkansas with Nick Andros. And Nick is still staying in Sheriff John Baker's house, who has already died from Captain Tripp's. And his wife, Janie, is not faring much better. The small town of Shoyo appears to be more or less deserted. Um, There's a sick dog in the street and a dead dog uh, further down the street. So it seems as though animals are not immune to Captain Tripp's. It is possible, I guess, that they're, um, they're affected the same way as humans are. Some are immune, some are not, but we don't really know at this point. Janie is feverish and delusional, and she's calling for Johnny. Nick can't hear her, but he can read her lips, so he's attempting to take care of her the best that he can. A minister had come by a couple days ago uh, when she'd gotten sick. He read the Bible with her, but Nick could tell that this guy was ready to go. He was eager to get out of there. Nick assumed that the minister would grab his family um, and get out of Shoyo because that seemed to be the thing to do now. The flu was spreading so quickly and violently that uh, it's just time to go, time to get out. Since the minister left, um, Janie took a turn for the worst, and Nick is not sure that she's going to make it to sunset. So Nick is also trying to attempt, um, he's trying to multitask here because um, in addition to taking care of Janie, he's still taking care of the prisoners down at the police station. And if you guys remember the last chapter that we saw Nick, um, the very end of that chapter said by the time he got back to the prison, Vince Hogan um, had died. But this is kind of going back a little bit in time to show Nick's day leading up to that. Because here Vince is still sick and delirious. And Mike and Billy, um, they want out. But Nick cannot bring himself to release them. They're still dangerous. And Nick is he's carrying around a gun that he found in Baker's desk. But he believes um, still that the state patrol will get their shit together, show up in Shoyo, and take these two guys to Camden. Nick is trying to take care of Vince the best that he can. He's giving him ice packs to help with the fever. And he really wishes he could speak so he could give Vince some form of comfort, some verbal form of comfort. And I like this because it really shows a lot about Nick's character that he's tending to a man who beat and robbed him. Um, He's trying to make this guy's pain a little less. He wants to comfort Vince in this miserable miserable state that he's in. Um, Nick and Billy spend their time yelling at Nick, begging him to let them out. But Nick is very wary. Nick knows that they're scared and panicked and, quote, Panic makes men dangerous. So Nick is spending his time walking back and forth between uh, the Baker house for Janie and then the police station for Vince. Businesses are still open. A few of them, anyway, are still open. But people are leaving town. The army has the roads in and out of Shoyo blocked. But apparently the locals are leaving through the woods and logging roads. They are wading up the Shoyo stream that will take them out of town and over into the next town of Mount Holly. And a lot, of, a lot of them leave after dark to avoid detection. Um, given what we've seen in the past chapters of how the army is treating people who don't do what they want, I'm guessing that's probably a smart idea. When Nick returns to the Baker house after leaving Vince and the others, Janie's up and moving around. 
and her fever is gone. She thanks Nick for taking care of her, you know, but she's upset, and understandably so, because she begins to grieve for her husband, and Nick does his best to console her. And because he is such a sweetheart, he sits her down and he makes her some tea, explaining through his written notes that there aren't many people left in Shoyo. He has no idea how many in town have the flu, but it seems to be pretty bad. And Nick has not seen Dr. Soam since the morning, but he explains that Vince Hogan is very sick. And Janie is adamant that Nick not let the prisoners out, and he promises he promises her that uh, he will not do that. So Janie suggests that Nick takes John's car to supper. She wants him to take John's car to bring supper to Vince um, and the others because, you know, Nick's walking back and forth the whole time. But Nick cannot drive, and he's fine with walking. Janie then wonders if they took John to the Curtis Mortuary. And John's parents and her parents have always been buried out of there. She hopes that they took him there um, and he got there okay. And then she begins to cry again. And it's all very sad. Um, poor Nick. I just don't think he knows what to do. He doesn't, obviously he can't say anything, but he's just not sure how to comfort her the way that he really would like to. So Nick has to break into the truck stop later for food because it's closed now. And he figures some petty cash from Baker's box at the station will pay for any damages. He makes some hamburgers, grabs some milk and some apple pie slices, and he takes them back to the jail to feed the prisoners. This is where he finds that Vince Hogan is dead. The book describes him as, He lay on the floor of his cell amid a clutter of melting ice and wet towels. He had clawed at his neck at the end as if he had been resisting an invisible strangler. The tips of his fingers were bloody. Flies were lighting on him and buzzing off. His neck was as black and swollen as an inner tube some heedless child had pumped up to the point of bursting. Yeah, Mike wants out <laughs> because, you know, Fitz is dead and now Billy has it. Billy is sick. Billy denies this uh, vehemently until he doubles over from sneezing, spraying snot and saliva everywhere. And it's pretty gross, you guys. It's nasty. And Mike is pretty infuriated now because he thinks this is Nick's fault. He made them stay in there. But Nick refuses to let them go. And this is where Mike just loses it. Throwing himself against the bars, bruising his face and hands, slamming his head against the bars over and over. Finally, he wears himself out, as children who are throwing temper tantrums generally do. And Nick slides his food under the cell. Billy starts to eat, but Mike throws his food around, wasting it like a child. And you know what? Okay, I understand where he's coming from. Watching someone get sick and die, and then your other cell might start to show signs of it too. And you're, you're a rat in a cage. You're stuck. You cannot go anywhere. I would want out. <laughs> and what use is it keeping them there when the entire town is leaving as quickly as they can? On the other hand... I guess I would feel the same uncertainty as Nick. And we know this is bad. But Nick still believes that the State Patrol will come. He still leaves notes at the truck stop after breaking in. Um, he intends to pay back the damage uh, with petty cash. Like, he hasn't really grasped just how bad this is yet. And he made a promise to Baker to keep an eye on these guys. And not to mention the fact that they're only in there because of what they did to Nick. And while Vince was sick... Um, Almost immediately, okay, but Mike is not sick, and if Nick lets him out, who's to say that Mike won't beat Nick again or try to kill him and then take off 
with the rest of Shoyo. So I get both sides of this on different levels. It's just a scary situation all around. And Mike, in his infinite wisdom here, decides that he is on a hunger strike. He will not eat anything until Nick lets him out. And this seems super smart. (laughs) So, you know, Nick leaves Mike be. He wishes he knew how to drive so he could just take Mike and Billy to Camden himself. And you know what? Now Vince is dead and the flies are buzzing. So Nick finds a cool storage room downstairs in the police station. And he comes back up to take Vince's body down there. Mike, he of the hunger strike, has already given up on that. He's picking up apples off the floor and eating them. So Nick finds out that Vince is pretty heavy. And, you know, he's scared. When will he start feeling the same symptoms that took out Vince and Baker and the same symptoms that Billy seems to be exhibiting now? Thankfully, Nick does manage to drag Vince's body downstairs and he covers him up with a blanket. After this ordeal, Nick attempts to sleep, but he does not sleep well. He has vivid dreams and very vivid nightmares. Quote, he rarely had out-and-out nightmares, but more and more often lately they were ominous giving him the feeling that no one in them was exactly as they seemed and that the normal world had skewed into a place where babies were sacrificed behind closed blinds and stupendous black machines roared on and on in locked basements. And of course, the very, very personal terror that he would wake up with it himself. He did sleep a little, and the dream that came was one he had before recently, The cornfield, the smell of warm, growing things, the feel that something or someone very good and safe was close, a sense of home, and that began to fade into cold terror as he became aware that something was in the corn watching him. He thought, Ma, the weasels got in the hen house before waking up. Upstairs, Nick begins to make coffee, and Mike is crying now. Mike has the flu, too. He feels it in his throat, and Billy... Billy is comatose, his neck swollen and black like Vince's. It moved really fast for Billy. Nick runs to the phone to call Dr. Soames, but the phone is broken, so he heads back to the Baker house to ask Janie if she has seen the doctor. Janie's not delirious right now, but her words are slow and slurred. Nick asks her to call the doctor when she says she hasn't seen him, but Soames does not answer, nor does his nurse. They try the state patrol but long distance is out of service. Poor Janie thinks that she'll be with Baker soon, and Nick helps her upstairs to her bed to lie down. Outside, he tries to figure out what to do, and then he sees a child's bike in a yard nearby. It's not too small for him to ride, although he knows he'll look ridiculous riding it, but at this point, you know what, it'll have to do, who cares? So Nick begins to ride this bike out toward Route 63, where someone had seen soldiers masquerading as a road crew. Nick's decided that, you know what, if they're still there, they can take care of Billy and Mike because, you know what, those army men quarantined Shoyo, and now this was their responsibility. It takes Nick about an hour to reach uh, the road barriers, but no one is there. The, there are some, I think the, what they call those saw benches, saw horses, I forget what they call those, but they're, they've closed off the road, and the road itself um, is a bit torn up. Not so bad that one couldn't drive out if they didn't care about the springs of their car, but I find that interesting. I'm wondering if that's something that they did on purpose, you know, screw up the road so people can't drive through the barriers and get out. So Nick then spots, um, a swarm of flies. So many flies. They look like a black cloud 
Nick walks to the ditch where the flies are swarming, and he finds four men laying inside of it. Their faces and necks are swollen and black. And this is what terrifies Nick. I mean, I think he was already scared, but this really does it. He runs back to his bike, and he heads back towards Shoyo. On his way, he hits a rock, and he crashes his bike, bumping his head. So he takes those few moments to kind of um, recover and shiver before he continues on his way. And poor Nick, man, he's trying in vain to find someone, (laughs) anyone to help him. Not many people answer the doors. He goes around knocking on doors. Um, Those who do answer the door say no. Nick is frustrated. He's not for the first time frustrated, but you know, his inability to speak hinders him a lot here. He wants to say to these people, you can drive, you can talk, you can hear. You could take them to Camden, where there's a hospital, and guess what? You could get help, too. But he can't speak, and so he just faces rejection after rejection. One man that actually opens the door is in a delirious rage and attempts to attack Nick. He thinks Nick is some man named Jenner from Houston. Nick compares the man to a zombie in a third-rate horror movie with swollen extremities, slow and shambling. The man eventually crashes to the porch and then crawls his way back into the house, leaving Nick alone on the yard where he had been watching. Finally, Nick realizes there is nothing he can do. Most of the houses are silent or empty. He has the feeling he was simply knocking on the tombs of the dead. What happens if those corpses rose to answer his knock? And you know what? It's so easy to be scared, you know, and then your brain just intensifies it into irrational fear. And this happened to me so many times where I've watched a scary movie or something's going on or I'm worried about somebody and then my brain just kicks in. It takes over. It makes it worse. (laughs) You just cannot shut it down. Nick tries to tell himself that the occupants simply fled already, but you know what? That doesn't do much to quell how scared he is. After quickly checking on Janie, Nick returns to the truck stop. He is exhausted, but he feels his obligation to keep on going. He makes some soup for Billy and Mike, but when he returns to the police station, Billy is dead. Mike is either crazed or delirious. He tells Nick, two down, one to go. Nick is finally getting his revenge. Nick gives Mike his lunch and he sits down to eat his own, but he's wondering how Mike is feeling. Mike thinks that maybe he only has a mild case of this, you know? He's he's talking himself into thinking, you know, maybe this is not so bad. He's not going to die. Um, he's hopeful. He, he wants Nick to be hopeful too. So Nick agrees, but maybe not. Mike begs him to let him go now. He wants to check on his wife. Nick quickly points out that he's not wearing a wedding ring, you know, but they're divorced and Mike wants to check on her. Nick has a gun. So why would Mike try anything? He just wants to go home. And then he starts to cry again. Finally, Nick agrees and he gets the keys. Mike is grateful and apologizes for beating up on Nick. You know, it was all Ray's idea, of course. And then he bolts for the doors. Nick follows and finds Mike outside, completely blindsided by the look of the town. He is stunned at what he finds. And then he begins to cough. He tells Nick that getting out of town, yeah, he's doing that. And Nick should do the same. Mike takes off down the sidewalk and Nick never sees him again. But he's pretty sure that he did the right thing. He's confident. Nick goes back inside onto one of the cots and falls asleep. When he wakes up, he is feeling a little bit better. He walks to a radio and TV shop, breaking in, and he leaves a note, of course. 
He steals a portable television. He takes it back to the jail and flips through the channels, but there's really nothing of note on TV. No news. So Nick returns to the truck stop, makes some more food, and takes it back to Janie. He still has his gun, um, and he has to use it to chase off some hungry dogs. So obviously, I don't know if these dogs are sick or not, but they're hungry, and they're chasing Nick down for some food. So maybe the animals uh, are kind of responding to this flu the way the humans are. Maybe some of them are immune. He finds Janie inside asleep, but she looks terrible. He leaves her some food and goes back to the living room to turn on the television. He waits for the news, and when it finally comes on, he is stunned to see that the super flu epidemic is a lead story. The newscaster's claim is under control. They claim a flu vaccine has been developed and could be administered by one's doctor as early as the next week. There are outbreaks everywhere, but don't worry, they are contained. Some public gatherings were temporary can- temporarily canceled. But, you know, Nick is thinking in Shoyo, the entire town has been canceled. He is not fooled by the news at all. So he turns off the television and he goes outside to sit and think. The television is a completely visual medium for Nick. He is not distracted by noises. So he notices a lot of stuff that, you know, um, people who can hear probably wouldn't notice. He has noticed that there's no baseball scores. It's as if uh, there's been no baseball games played. There's a very uh, vague weather report and map. It's as if the U.S. Bureau of Meteorology has closed up shop. There are no video clips. The newscasters seemed upset, nervous. One had a cold. And they kept looking to the right and left as if somebody was there watching them, making sure that they said the right things. So this was all on the night of June 24th. Now, on June 25th, he witnesses the death of Jane Baker, this fine woman, and he couldn't comfort her, not with words. Janie thanks Nick for being there because nobody wants to die alone. Jane asks Nick to bury her in a white lace dress that she wore when um, she and John left for their honeymoon. Nick agrees to do this. And then he listens to her talk for a while. Um, She just talks about random things, mostly about her life, about her sister, a camping trip with John, where a moose had forced them up into a tree where they had been stuck all day. Jane tells Nick that they were very much in love. She says, love is what moves the world, I've always thought. It is the only thing that which allows men and women to stand in a world where gravity always seems to want to pull them down, bring them low, and make them crawl. So we were so much in love. Janie trails off to sleep, but when she wakes again, she's delirious. She screams about John needing to help her with the stick shift. He has to help her. Her words trailed off in a long, rattling exhaustion he could not hear but sensed all the same. A thin trickle of dark blood issued from one nostril. She fell back on the pillow, and her head snapped back and forth once, twice, three times, as if she had made some kind of vital decision, and the answer was still negative. Then she was still. Nick mourns Janie. Um, At the same time, he doesn't want to do what he has said he would do. This was not his responsibility. But no one else is around, and there's just no way he could leave her there to rot in her bed. She had been so nice to him. So Nick fulfills Janie's wish. He washes her body and dresses it in the white dress that she asked for. 
Then he carries her to the funeral home, carries her like a bridegroom crossing an endless threshold with his beloved in his arms. And that is the end of chapter 25. You guys, I have read this book so many times, and I cannot remember this chapter making me as emotional as it did this time. It was pretty rough when Baker died, but here with Janie, um, Nick is alone, and he's scared. And he has been through an ordeal on his own, but he stays with Janie until she dies. He takes care of her. He follows through on her request when he could have just left. He could have left Mike to die. He could have run off and saved himself so many times. He could have left Shoyo, but he stays. He made a promise to Baker, and Janie had treated him with so much kindness. Despite his fear and his uncertainty, Nick stays. He risks his safety um, by letting Mike out, but he stays with Janie. He buries her, and he's such a kind soul. I love Nick. He deserves so much. And it's so easy to relate to his inner emotion and his dialogue, you know, trying to find someone to help him, someone who could talk and drive all these things that might be all these problems that could be solved if he could just talk or drive, you know, and this, I get his desire not to want to bury Janie. It's not his responsibility, but I don't think that that comes from this like selfish, oh, I don't want to do it kind of place. I think it's He's so tired, you know, and he's seen so much death already, and he knows it's going to be hot. He's going to have to bury her. I don't know. I I just see him as him being exhausted, exhausted for over so many things. He couldn't, but you know what? He couldn't bear to walk away. He couldn't leave her in the bed, and he could have, and you know, not after, he just couldn't do it, not after everything that uh, she and Baker had done for him. I really think so far he might be the purest King character (laughs) that King has introduced us to in this book. Um, And now his obligations are are fulfilled, like he's done. His responsibilities, those that he said were not his responsibilities, but he did anyway, he's finished. So what will he do now? He can't drive. Will he take a bike out of town? Hopefully one that's, you know, built a little bit more for his size. Will he walk? He knows all about walking. He's done it plenty of times. Nick knows that the shit is hitting the fan. You know, just watching the news has told him that much, despite what the news was telling him. Nick is not the only person who isn't buying what the news is trying to feed him. Next week, in Chapter 26, we're going to get a good look into the others around the country who are fighting back, convinced that the government is lying to them. Newscasters, journalists, the truth will out. And they're going to make damn sure it does, no matter what the consequences, because what else do they have to lose by now? And that's the end of episode 23. And if you're enjoying this podcast, you could leave me a rating and or review at iTunes or any platform that you listen to this podcast on. They certainly help me. Um, they help the podcast out a lot and they certainly make my day and I appreciate every single one of them. Um, I think that's really it, you guys. I did most of my rambling at the beginning of this episode when I was talking to you guys about the stand. And I would love to hear what you guys thought about this episode. Um, what do you guys think about Nick? I just, I love his chapters. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of problems in this book, a lot of problematic things. But I just think Nick writes, um, Nick, oh Jesus. I think Stephen King writes Nick so well, um, You know, these other characters, they all have their problems. They all have their issues. They all have their flaws. And I'm not saying Nick is flawless. Um, 
But I'm wondering how many other people that we've met so far in this book would have done what he did. And it's hard to really pinpoint somebody. So I'm loving Nick. I can't wait to see what comes next for him. So you know what? With that being said, M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. <laughs>